If you are able to stand and join me with for the scripture reading this morning, please do take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, he has, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts and minds this morning. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer to ask that he do what he heard. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us this opportunity to hear the reading of your word. We now ask you to allow us to comprehend it in such a way that you have intended that we live as people that understand the truth and live out the truth in our lives for your glory and for our ever important and and continuing progression of sanctification of changing of transforming of being made new and right by you in christ's name we pray amen well this morning's message is entitled let us truly perceive the one who lives and in order to get us thinking today, I wanted to tell, rather than ask a question, I wanted to tell a short little story. <clears throat> Have you ever been surprised by something that you thought was dead that, quote, came back to life? Well, we had such a situation, Cindy and I. We had a, uh, a lemon tree on the side of our house, and my wife loves lemons. This thing produced ginormous lemons, and, we, and she particularly liked that it did. And for uh, ever since 2002, when we moved into our home, we've been had the benefit of having these wonderful lemons. And then about two summers ago, things started going south, and the leaves started turning kind of yellowish. And I thought it was a watering issue, and I thought it was a fertilizer issue, and couldn't figure it out. And it, things were getting a little more challenging to get it to produce and, and look like it was a healthy uh, tree. Then pretty soon, the, uh, the water well that I had dug out, and it had worked so well for me for years to give it nice, deep irrigation, all of a sudden there appeared an anthill. And these were aggressive little boogers, and lots of them. And they would climb up the tree, and I'm thinking, I don't know anything about what ants do, but there's a lot of them, so there must be a lot of them down there, and something's going south because I can't get this tree to do what it used to do. Pretty soon, the ants left. Don't know why. Didn't kill them because I didn't want to put anything in the, in the well that would kill them and get down to the roots. And so, okay, this is a good sign. And then termites showed up. And so the termites are making the little mud pathway up the tree. And I'm thinking, oh, this isn't good. They smell death. They know there's dead 
uh, tree on this tree and sure enough the bark starts falling off and you can see that underneath the bark it's dead and that's where they, these termites were headed. Well, it wasn't long before large sections of this tree were, were dying every few days. So knowing that this was a lost cause, uh, I ended up uh, cutting down the tree. I thought, I'm going to do it right. I even rented a grinder and grinded the stump. Never had worked one of those machines before. And man, they uh, uh, challenged to hold on to. Got the stump all grounded down. Put the filled in the well with the berms that I had created so the, the ground was flat. Put the rocks back on it, and this is a year ago fall. And then a year ago now in the springtime, I had given this tree no water. And all of a sudden, I'm walking by doing the, the thing we do in the in the spring to get all of our the weeds out of our rocks. Um, I'm walking by this this should be a flat ground with nothing growing, and out come I see these shoots of healthy lemon tree and I'm thinking what's going on I thought this tree was dead uh, so as we think about that you may have a story that uh, this has happened before and, and either in your your uh, attempt to be a farmer or in, in other areas of your life maybe some animals that were seemed like they were sick and they recovered well today we're going to hear something that goes the opposite direction. I mean, rather than dealing with something that appears to be dead, we're dealing with the topic of Christ actually being dead. And where I was surprised for life of the tree that seemed like it had come back to life, we're going to see three groups of people that should have perceived that Christ was going to be raised again, that resurrection was going to occur in three days but they failed to perceive that. Do me a favor and take your bulletin, and, and let's read the takeaway today, which is actually a challenge. It's on the back page. I've written it up as a challenge. And our challenge today, and as we look at the sermon notes, is difficult situations, shortcomings in our character, and simplistic thinking are all prone to hinder the reality of Christ's resurrection in our lives. So what should we do? Let us truly perceive the one who lives. So with that in mind, let us take a look at our, our first group of people. It's the, the women, the women disciples that are heading to the tomb. Now, we need a little bit of background before we get started. This is Luke's gospel. Luke is not one of the 12 disciples. Luke is writing an account. Luke is, we, there is, there is, an argument whether or not Luke actually was a doctor or not. Some people say he was, some people say he wasn't. Whatever the case, I appreciate Luke because Luke is an investigator. Luke is one who wants to get the facts right. He wants to go and interview uh, and these eyewitness accounts and come up with and compile this gospel. And so we even read and we learn that in, the, uh, in verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, Luke tells us, the impetus that behind him writing this book, and he tells us he, he's addressing Theophilus, whose name means either lover of God, Theo in the Greek is God, either lover of God or friend of God. We don't know exactly which it, it was, but it's one of those. He, he is somebody that embraces God. It's interesting that be his name. And he has basically financed Luke to get these, this account of this gospel. And Luke tells us this, he has done so, this is from verse 4, and I'm paraphrasing, to provide, and now specifically, an orderly eyewitness account. Luke is saying, this is what you can trust because I have gained this from eyewitnesses. 
And then he continues on in verse 4 that he may, that, speaking of uh, uh, Theophilus, that he may have certainty, so no doubt, have certainty concerning the things that he, that he has been taught. So this book is being written by Luke for the benefit of Theophilus and really the Church of God. It's one of the four Gospels. And so when you understand what Luke is doing here, you appreciate he's an investigator. So as we carry out, as I, as I share and expound the passage today, I want you to hear, you're going to hear me just, I'm going to start clicking off. Evidence number one, evidence number two, evidence number three, they're in it. And he is purposely throwing down evidences for us, the church, later on. But he's pointing out also what the three groups should have picked up on that they failed to perceive in knowing that the resurrection is a reality, affirmed reality. There is no question. They should know by certainty that Christ has been raised. It's the third day. So we begin with the women and these, these are the women who failed to recall and did not perceive. Now, please don't get, get, be down on each of these three groups. The, every one of these groups recovers uh, by, the, by the blessing of God, and, and they are wonderful believers willing to give their lives, whether it is sacrificing anything they knew before as a life before being a disciple of Christ or actually becoming martyrs. So these are wonderful people, but we are at a place that something is causing them not to perceive. So let's look at these women in, in Luke 28, one, excuse me, 24, 1 through 8. But on the first day of the week, this is the first Resurrection Sunday. Do you realize that every Sunday is actually Resurrection Sunday? Every Sunday we share the truth of the gospel. Every Sunday we remind people that the whole word of God points to what Christ has done. This is the first Resurrection Sunday. And it is a Sunday. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. So it's not told to us explicitly who the they are. Later on, he's going to share that they're the women. But so you, you know it. They are speaking to the women. They're heading to the grave, taking the spices that they had pre prepared, or, or the tomb, if you prefer that terminology. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Evidence number one. We have an open tomb that should not have been opened. It should have the guard next to it and guarding it that it does not be opened. Now, it's allowed to be opened once they get there in order to do what the culturally accepted thing to do is to bring spices to cover the smell of the, of the rot that will occur to the human body. But it should not be opened, and it is open. So it is the, the first evidence is the open tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Evidence number two, we got a missing body. We got an open door and a missing body. I feel like I'm back in my PD days. I'm going to call it in to dispatch. Houston, we got a problem. And that's, it, 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 they are not comprehending what's, what's going on that they are, didn't expect to be going on. But when they went in and did, and did not find the body of the Lord, excuse me, but w when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, sorry about that. W uh, while they were perplexed about that, or about this, in other words, they're confused. They can't figure it out. Things are not making sense to them. Their reality is being challenged. Something's wrong here. They're leaving out a component that would give them the, the totality of the reality of what has gone on. 
And they were perplexed about this. <clears throat> Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Okay, Luke is referring to these two men, uh, these two beings as being simply men. But as soon as the, uh, uh, the followers of Christ uh, would have heard the, the description of their clothing as dazzling apparel, that would have been a tip-off. That, that, if you recall, the, the transfiguration where Jesus goes up on the mount and he is transfigured and they're allowed to see the glory of Christ by way of this brightness that shone from him, it says that Christ's clothing was dazzling white. So the picture is that the, these beings are more than men. These beings are from the realm of God. And they are radiating the glory of God. And so we see that this is the third evidence, that there are beings here that are not of the physical world. They're of the heavenly realm. Evidence number three. And we continue on. Uh, And and as they were frightened, uh, interesting, the, the word frightened there gives an understanding of being rightly reverential in the awe or fear of their presence. Think about this. You walk in today, and you are expecting to see other physical human beings. And all of a sudden, in our presence, there is somebody who is, whose clothing is so dazzling that we might find ourselves turning away from it, and we're going, uh, no clothing that can do that. We would stand in awe and be going, what is going on? So you have to understand what, how they're processing all this. So uh, we see that they, uh, they were frightened. They demonstrated reverential awe and bowed their faces to the ground. Why bow their faces? Are they worshiping? No. They realize they are in the presence of beings from God's realm. They are strictly showing humility and bowing before this, realizing that something from God is occurring We've got beings from God's realm in our presence. So that we see that being their response to these two men, these two angels, is another evidence that this resurrection has taken place. There is there's extraordinary events going on here. So we continue uh, on in this. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? All right, we need a full stop. I need to geek out on you for a second. Because something happened in the Greek that you don't see in the English. And I want to share it with you. So when the men said, why do you seek the living? The living is the noun. It's the object. Why do you, and you being the subject, seek, there's the verb, action, the living is the object. Why are you doing this for the, for the living? Well, when I read that, I don't know, maybe you did the same thing I did. When I read it in the English, the living sounds like, oh, why are you seeking plural, the li- like a living beings among beings, uh, it, amongst the, the dead beings? But what is actually going on here, and here's where we geek out, is this is a participle. And for those of you who are not English majors or who are not, not fascinated by that, um, I want to share with you what is happening. The, remember, 
uh, every writer uses the words they use for a reason. He could have easily used the noun to refer to the living. He didn't do that. He used the participle. Why are you using that, Luke? Because a participle is a verb that is used. Sometimes it can be used this way. This is the way we're seeing it today. It's used to replace a noun. So it's an action word that is describing a people in action, some form of action. So it becomes a noun. So it would be translated woodenly. There's no problem with the way the translator translated it as the living, but it misses a deeper point here. What, is, what would it would sound like is this. Why do you seek the one? It's a singular participle. The one who lives. Well, they went there looking for Jesus' body. So in context, he is saying, why do you seek the one who lives among the dead. He is not dead. Why would you? He is no longer dead. I should say it that way. In his humanity, he has died. Why are you looking for the one who lives here? That is why this, this, this uh, sermon has been titled, Let Us Truly Perceive the One Who Lives. So that one of the things we should leave here today with is a reminder that we live, excuse me, that we worship, that we depend upon a living God. We do not depend upon a dead God. Christ Jesus is the one who lives. He continues on in verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. What is going on with evidence number five? Heaven, by way of the heavenly messengers, is making a declaration. He has risen. Heaven, by way of it being the kingdom or the sphere of, by which God resides and God rules and reigns. We know that the, the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ sits at God's right hand in heaven that's a picture of God giving him all authority as the God-man after he accomplished uh, that which he, was, he came down to earth to accomplish. We understand that heaven has authority over earth because heaven is where God is. It's like saying God has authority to determine what the reality on earth is. Even if we misunderstood it, even if we misinterpret it, heaven, when it makes a declaration, we go, oh, whatever we're seeing that we're believing it's got to line up with that or it's wrong. So this is what is occurring here. They, he's, it is stated again, he is not here, but has risen. So let's continue on. Remember how he, referring to Jesus, these are the angels referring to Jesus, told you, ah, number six, our sixth evidence, Jesus prophesying about himself. Jesus telling something about himself in the past when they were in his presence, that would happen in the future, and it's now come to play. So let's look at this. What did he prophesy in the past? What did he in the past say would come to, to pass in, in the future? While he was in Galilee, that the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title, almost, he uses it almost as a name of himself, it emphasizes his humanity. It emphasizes his humanity. Our Savior was the God-man, is what the theologians like to call him. Fully God, fully man. And as fully man, he suffered everything that a man could suffer. And yet he also, and I'm speaking of the crucifixion to that end, but, and he also never sinned once in his life. 
he liked to refer to himself as the son of man. Don't forget, I am human, fully human. Don't make me out to something that cannot be understood in the sense of I became one of you so that I could atone for you. You, we had to have an, someone who atoned who was one of us and was completely righteous. There is no one that has ever lived that is one of us and completely righteous. That's why Jesus is the only one. That's why he became who he became. That's why he took on flesh in order to come down as the righteous one. So we continue on. And we understanding that, uh, the, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. That is, executed by being nailed on a cross where he would die of asphyxiation as he could not support himself any longer and he would slowly slump and his lungs would lose the ability, his diaphragm would lose the ability to push air in and out and he would suffocate to death. That is what happened to our Lord. Think of the excruciating pain that brought about that death and be reminded of the sacrifice he made unto us. And it continues on. And these are the key words that he gets to. He says, leading up to it, he says, and be crucified. And then he says, and on the third day, rise. It was prophesied that on the third day. Let's do some Jewish math here. Because Jewish math is, is the same as, as English, math, uh, English country, Western countries math. But it's a little more confusing to us. Their days go from 6 p.m. at night. Basically, I'm going to use that as dusk. Um, to, um, and until dusk the next day. Jesus is, is killed on Friday. When I say killed, he's crucified, and then he dies of asphyxiation. In fact, we know that because in the uh, Good Friday uh, message that PJ had us uh, uh, um, walk through, we saw that in John that the, that, that the uh, soldiers could see that Jesus appeared dead and they made sure he was dead by running a spear up into his chest and out came blood and water. The separation of blood and water being further evidence that he had, he had died. He was completely dead. So on the third day, he was to... Oh, I was doing the math here. Okay, so you got Friday before, uh, before uh, 6 p.m. So we're on Friday day. Soon as Friday turns to 6 p.m., we're now on Saturday. Excuse me. We're now on this, the the Sabbath. The the second day is when he sits in, and he is he is now taken and he's buried. Well, actually, all that took place on Friday. But now he sits in the grave, and the whole day he had a partial day dying on Friday. He sits in the grave the whole day on Saturday, and then now. On Sunday, this third day, there's the math for you so you understand how the three days work. We are now from Saturday at 6 until Sunday at 6, Saturday at 6 p.m. until Sunday at 6 p.m. is the third day. Somewhere in that time frame, he has risen. And they should have known that because Jesus Christ prophesied about it. So what's going on here? What are the angels doing interacting with these women? The angels are gently rebuking them for not perceiving. He had told them what they would do. And yet they come not expecting to see an empty tomb. They come expecting to see the rotting body of their Savior. Their reality was amiss. It was off. It was not truly what was going on. So why? What hindered them from perceiving? 
Well, I suggest to you that it was the situation. Think about this. The one they had put their trust in. These are the women that have followed him since the early days of his ministry in Galilee. They have followed him three years. That He, to them, is their Savior, which is a right place of standing, but he died. They don't grasp the, the physical reality of knowing that they saw him dead, and now they are completely blinded to the reality that heaven said, by way of Jesus' own proclamation, in their presence, directly to them, that he would rise again in three days. Difficult situations that they were dealing with, this whole concept, this whole understanding of Jesus' death, difficult situations have a way of consuming you and me in the immediate and blinding us of the heavenly perspective. We have two realities that happened we are on this earth. We have the reality of what we're facing as Christians, what is going on in our physical world, and we have the reality of what we have been told by heaven above put through the revealed word of God of how to make sense of what is going on here in this world. They are struggling to make sense because they only are focused on the immediate difficult situations, almost steer us like a horse with blinders and cause us to look only at the immediate, the difficult, the painful, the chaos that we are going through trying to, to, to take care of difficult situations. The women were completely and exclusively focused on the earthly reality of Jesus' death. So we've got some questions to answer for ourselves. How does this apply to us? Well, what difficult situation have you recently have you maybe in the past, maybe right now going through, or you might be going through in the near future, what difficult situation is demanding your attention or has demanded your attention? What is it that you process over and over? It's like a broken loop, and your mind always comes back to this. You'll be in the midst of your day, and boom. There it is. And you're like, why am I bringing this up? Why am I thinking about this? I don't want to think about this. It's because it's difficult and you haven't resolved it. If you are an analytical type, this is the, 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 the challenge, the struggle that you will deal with regularly in difficult situations. But there are others that go the other direction. I tend to go the other direction. Some are analytical. Some do a, do a, a different technique. We tend to go, I can't focus on this. So we go through the, let's just push through it mode. I'm going to go through this mindlessly. I am not going to allow myself to focus on this issue because if I allow myself to focus on this issue, it will consume me. I know it. It's happened before. I'm just going to work through it. Either way, it's robbing ourselves of the reality that the one who is alive the one who, who lives, Jesus Christ, has given us a resurrection perspective on life, what God is doing in the midst of our pain, and a resurrection power on how to get through what we're dealing with. And if we are failing to understand heaven's perspective, we will suffer in confusion, in pain, in emotional hurt, that can sometimes be even crippling. We don't want to do that. Look to what God's word has said. Heaven has declared the truths that we know. Well, let's look at the apostles as our second group of people. 
the apostles who dismissed and refused to perceive, it's almost ironic that the apostles are in a, in, a, in a more egregious position of lack of perception than the women are. So let's take a look at this. In Luke 24, 9 through 11, it says, And returning from the tomb, they, speaking of the woman, of the women, uh, uh, where are we? Sorry about that. And returning from the room, they, the women, excuse me, told, and now we get to, we got the women giving an eyewitness account. We have evidence number eight getting ready to come out. So the the apostles have additional evidence, or at least it must evidence you might say, as the women did. And they told all these things. When he, when it says all these things, he's emphasizing all. It's saying the women didn't leave anything out. The apostles are not going to get a pass because well they, you didn't tell me everything. They were told everything, and uh, to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was, and now we get the women identified. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the Mary and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with him. Again, these are the women that have been with him since the beginning of his Galilean ministry, who told these things to the apostles. Oh, Luke, I appreciate you, Luke, because you just threw a zinger in there. We normally think a biblical way concept construct of understanding a disciple versus an apostle. We're all called to be, a, a, uh, in some sense, I'm going to explain the sense. I've heard of apostles in, in today's modern-day church, and they see themselves as authoritative as apostle. That is not biblical. That is unbiblical. Eh, do not buy that. There's a problem in that theology if you hear that. What I'm saying here in this sense, that all of us are disciples, we are followers of Christ, and we are all apostles, those that are sent out to share Christ. That's my sense that I'm giving to you, I'm conveying. Now, these are actual authoritatively given apostles. These are the sent ones, but they're not sent out post-resurrection yet. We were going to see that happen in the book of Acts. Once the Spirit comes on and he sends them out into the world. So we see Luke here throwing a little irony in here. He's calling them apostles. It's emphasizing their lack of perception. These are the ones that are supposed to go tell the world about the resurrection of Christ Jesus, and they're going to dismiss it. These are no apostles at this moment. They are stumbling. And I hope that's an encouragement to you when you and I sometimes stumble and we're reminded that even the apostles stumbled. Have you ever failed to share the truth of the resurrection with somebody? And you're so convicted. Why did I do that? Lord, you put it on my heart. I was scared. There were people around. I thought I'd, I would be perceived as a fool or some nut job or whatever it is. And I failed. I should have shared. If you're pushing on my heart, you're probably working in that person's heart. I may not see the fruit today. Why did I not share? Well, we are hopefully encouraged that there are even men and women greater than us that failed at a time that they should have perceived and moved forward in. Let us continue here. So we read, and who told these things to the apostles in verse 11, but these words seemed to them as idle tales, as an idle tale. In other words, nonsense, foolishness, useless chatter. This is, this is how they are putting it down. Oh, come on, seriously? And it says they did not believe. Don't hear this as belief in faith. They just didn't believe the account. 
He's not dealing with faith here. He's dealing with the idea of believing what should be able to be perceived clearly because of what has been given to them. They do not perceive. So what's going on in this, situ- this particular situation? Well, the 11 disciples not only dismiss what they have been taught, what the women saw as far as the empty tomb, which heaven has declared, they are going all out here and saying, yeah, those messengers are no messengers from God. We were not listening to God. Heaven has no authority over us. What a, what a, a sad state of mind. Now, did they say that stuff? No. Do their actions reflect that? Yes. They should have been cognitive. They should have been thinking. They should have been aware. They should have been diligently looking for the resurrection, but they're not. They're downplaying it. In fact, they're worse than downplaying it. They're dismissing what the angels have done to declare this truth of resurrection. Heaven declared the reality of the resurrection, and yet these would-be apostles denounce heaven's authority to correct them. That's what the women, the angels corrected the women. The women are now coming with a, a, a statement that for them, because they're dismissing it, it should have been, even if they had a dismissive attitude before hearing it, it, it should have corrected them to go, whoa, we are way wrong. Boy, did we miss the boat here. We want to go see this. They don't do that. The apostles actually refuse to perceive. Why? It's an issue of pride and arrogance. You can almost hear them putting down the women. Useless chatter. Nonsense. Come on. Weak-minded. Don't you know who we are? How sad that state is. So let me ask us this question. How are we perceiving our difficult situation that we are facing? Do we only see death and destruction? That's what the apostles were saying. He was a great man. He taught us a lot of great things. He's dead. Something's wrong. We can't make it out. We can't make these two realities work. Why is he dead? He was going to save the nation. He was going to deliver us. He was going to, in their reality, he was going to be the the soldier-like hero that would take the sword against the Roman Empire and free and liberate The Israelites, they had a wrong understanding of what reality actually was. What is our wrong understanding of our reality that that is difficult, that we are going through? Have we sought the one who lives to ask him in the midst of our confusion, can you share the truth? And if if it's not that I should know today why I am suffering today, then will you please remind me of the perspective of the resurrection? Will you please give me the grace, in other words, the power, your resurrected power to get through this difficult situation? Are we doing that? I don't know. Only you can answer that. I know I need a reminder. I know my wife is graciously reminds me my, when my head is low and my mouth betray what my head is thinking. And she needs to come alongside me and remind me of the realities of heaven, what has heaven declared about this situation. Our situations, like much like the, the women, they try and consume and take our focus off of, of the reality that heaven gives us. Let me leave you with one thought here. 
in this particular area with the apostles. Do you perceive that Jesus has the resurrection power to bring good out of evil, to bring good even out of death? We keep seeing it. We saw it all through Genesis. We're starting to see it through the book of Exodus as we work our way through it. And now this week, rather than me preaching from the Old Testament, we jump into the New Testament for this special week, and we see it preached here. God has not changed. He is still now by way of resurrection power taking what is evil and bringing about good. We need to be reminded of that. Let's look at this last area. Peter, who was stuck in his his simplistic thinking and did not perceive. Luke 24, 12 ends with this. But Peter rose and ran. And you're thinking, okay. The apostles as a group were, were, didn't, I'll just say it nicely, rather than come up with something that gives you an image. They, I was going to say they were duds. Um, the, the apostles who did nothing and sat on their backsides, one of them jumps up and runs, and you go, yeah, this is what's supposed to be happening. He may have been off at first, but now he's got it. He's, got, he's perceived this all. He's running to the tomb, and he's going he's to go do something spectacular. But we have to remember, who are we talking about? We're talking about Peter, impetuous Peter. Impetuous with, gives the impression, the understanding, that he is one who lacks the discipline of thinking well. He likes to jump up and do and not address thinking through what his actions are going to be. He's the one that when he says, when Christ says, hey, you're going, uh, you know, who do you say I am? And then he says, and then uh, he says, oh, you are the Christ, the son of God. And then he says that he must die. And, and Christ is sharing with him. And he must die. Surely you will not die. And Christ looks at him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, you're not grasping. I have to die. Instead of realizing that the, the soldiers coming to him and coming to Jesus and taking him into custody was all part of God's plan. He doesn't think well before he acts. He just acts. So what we find here is, unfortunately, this is impetuous Peter in a, a, a place of inadequate thought. He jumps up, and here we go. Let's see what he does. And ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. Or the, now think about this. These are the linen wrappings. They once identified a dead body, Jesus Christ's body. But now, this is evidence number nine. They now identify Jesus Christ as raised. They could not hold the dead body. Think about this. You, as a, I think of this as a kid. My, my brothers and sisters used to terrify me. They would roll me up in a, uh, a carpet. You ever been rolled up in a carpet like this? Can't get out. He's like, ah, just unroll me. This is a picture of Jesus being wrapped in the, in the, the garments that would, would allow the burial process to take place, the decomp- decomposition process to take place. He could not have got in them, out of them on his own. This is the picture, the evidence that he did get out of them on his own by the supernatural power of God. He has been raised. The, the, the burial garments, the burial wrappings identify he has been raised. We need to recognize that. And yet we see, what, is, what do we see Peter doing? And it says, and he went home marveling 
at what had happened. When you read marveling, you might say to yourself, all right, Peter, you're on the right track. And that's kind of right. But is marveling good or bad? Well, let me, let me help you out. Marveling is one step in the direction of perception. Marveling, as Luke uses it all through his passage, is the, is the, the means of wonderment or the means of wondering about the extraordinary thing or event that took place. That's where his mind is. The crowds marveled at Jesus' miracles and walked away and never came back. Marveling is only one step. It's the right step, but we only are told that's where he ended. He didn't take it any further. There, he also failed to perceive. Peter has nine pieces of evidence before him and still only marvels. Peter's impetuous nature, that is his pattern of not intentionally, carefully, and thoroughly thinking through things, has led him to a place where he did it again. His nature, God can redeem our natures, but he has allowed his nature of impetuousness to hinder him. So let me ask you this. What is your nature as it relates to being able to perceive? I want, I want to share with you. See if this is, if you've ever said these things. See if you might line up in this area. I have said each of these things, and these are not good things to say in an ultimate sense. They were true at the time, but they cannot be where I stay. We serve a living God who redeems us in our character. See if you've ever said these things. I'm really not that smart. I've always tested low in the area of comprehension. I might say that I went through my father's, uh, I got a box from my dad's uh, death a year ago, and I went through it again recently, and I saw two grade report cards from my my, uh, elementary school. Two report cards had comprehension, C. So this is a true statement. When I have said in the past, I've always tested low in comprehension, it's true. Is it acceptable? Let's continue on. I'm not that good of a reader, and I really don't like to read. If you would have known my childhood, put me in sports. I don't want anything to do with a book. Can we stay there? How about this one? I prefer, but this one sounds good. This, this is kind of a, a, a masked way of sounding good when it's actually a shortcoming. I prefer being a doer instead of a, de, of a, of a details kind of a guy. Sounds good. What is it masking? I don't want to take the disciplined time to think through the many components of whatever I should be thinking through to come up with assessments that identify I can perceive and benefit from that perception. That's one thing that I will share with you personally. One of the reasons why I am in seminary is because I love structure. If I have structure, I, will, I, will be, I know I can be taught to perceive. If left to my own, I get lazy. I like the structure. What is your reason if you are one of these people? What is your reason for being for accepting where you are in perception? For being content with how you perceive or how little you perceive? Here's the reality. All those things may be true, but we Christians don't get a pass. Heaven has declared the reality of the resurrection 
And it's our responsibility, just like it was the women's responsibility, just like it was the apostles' responsibility, just like it's Peter's responsibility. He's going to tell us in the next verses, uh, uh, Luke is going to tell us about the, the road to Emmaus, just like it was to others' disciples' responsibility to perceive Let us take that responsibility on ourselves and say, I need the grace of God. I need the power of of resurrection to completely perceive, but I'm not going to be satisfied in saying that I'm just a slow thinker. I'm never going to get to the place where I can perceive. Don't be satisfied with that. Don't be a simplistic, impetuous thinker like Peter. Ponder the good things of God with all diligence and with a heart determined to perceive. Let me leave you with this. Peter, the impetuous, the one who doesn't think adequately. I learned this truth in studying for this sermon this week. The last words he writes ever in the book. 2 Peter 3.18, he says this. Listen to how he appreciates perception. He ends with this. Uh, and, and, he's, and I'm paraphrasing the first part of it. May you, he says, may, well, I won't paraphrase. May, may you grow in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord. May you grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord. He might as well have said, may you grow in your level of perception as God has graciously allowed me to grow. Church, we need to grow in that. We end with this point. Let us... This is us now. We're the fourth group of people. Let us truly perceive the one who lives, the resurrected resurrected Christ Jesus. Some of you, I heard you say the saying, and I want everyone to understand why we Christians say that. If someone greeted you this morning and said, he is risen, it is not merely a greeting. When we respond back one additional word, That one additional word means we perceive, we recognize, we we proclaim, we have joy in. It's all of that packed into this last word. So I am going to say to you, church, he is risen. And you say back, he is is risen indeed. Indeed, Indeed, I perceive. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truths that you have granted uh, uh, to us. You have given us your teachings by way of everything that preceded Jesus, the teachings that he gave us personally. You have given us his prophecy. You have given us heaven itself speaking forth these truths. And one thing not mentioned in here, because it hadn't happened yet, you have given us the Holy Spirit who affirms the truth in our heart once we have repented and believed. We know that we know that these truths are in fact true and we bow our faces to the ground in humility recognizing your greatness recognizing what your son has done recognizing the perspective and the power of the resurrection in christ jesus amen